Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would challenge and comfort us today. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are open, minds that will understand. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The psalm appointed for Ash Wednesday at the very start of Lent is the same psalm that is appointed for today on this fifth Sunday of Lent, Psalm 51. It is one of the great psalms of lament. Jewish commentator A. Cohen said of it, among the outpourings of the human heart, agonized by the consciousness of sin, this psalm stands preeminent. And this morning, I want to talk about three words in relation to sin. Recognize, repent, and receive. First, we need to recognize the reality of sin in our own lives. And second, we need to acknowledge our own inability to fix ourselves and instead to repent of our sin. And third, we need to receive God's forgiveness and to be renewed by his Holy Spirit. So first, recognizing sin in our lives. The backdrop of Psalm 51 is King David's thoroughly selfish and wicked behavior. The heading to the psalm that you'll find in most Bibles reads like this. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. In one calculating, sordid saga, David manages to break at least five of the Ten Commandments. As he covets another man's wife, he steals her, he commits adultery with her, he bears false witness and plots a conspiracy to cover it up, and finally he murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And when all that is done, thinking he has got away with it, he summons Bathsheba, whom he had got pregnant, and takes her to be his wife. You can read a fuller account of that story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But that chapter ends with a short and sobering sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The next chapter in 2 Samuel outlines Nathan the prophet coming to David to confront him with his sin. I commend it to you to read later today. It's Nathan tells this fable that utterly gets at what had gone on. Michael Wilcock writes, No Bible story describes the heart convicting quite like 2 Samuel 12 no Bible prayer expresses the lips confessing quite like Psalm 51. And so it is to Psalm 51 that we turn this morning. It was time for David to recognize what he had done. It was time for the king to get real about sin, his sin. He had to see it for what it was, feel it for what it had done, and be convicted 
as to his own guilt. All this for the same man who had previously said, I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Well, clearly David did come to recognize the depth of his depravity. At last, the king was humbled. No more scheming, no more taking, no more demanding. As he asks God to blot out his sin, David finally is honest and authentic. He is real. Listen, or look if you like, in your bulletins on Psalm 51. You'll see as you cast your eye down the first 10 verses, verse 1. Listen how how he talks about it. My offenses, verse 2. My wickedness, my sin, verse 3. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4, I sinned. I have done evil. Verse 6, I have been wicked. Verse 10, my iniquities. His sins are his own and they are inexcusable. I wonder what does it take for you and for me to recognize our own sinfulness. I think the frankness of David's confession and his self-awareness are too often rare today. I'm sure we've all seen those politicians or other high-profile figures coming onto the TV after having been caught or exposed in their adultery to make a public statement. Usually, they're dreadful scenes, by the way. Usually, the dutiful wife is standing there. But the words, I was wrong, or it was my fault, are usually missing. We don't hear the words of offense, wickedness, transgression, and iniquity. Instead, we hear words like, I made a mistake, or I demonstrated a lack of judgment. That is woefully inadequate language. Making a mistake is when you say the capital of Australia is Sydney. I'll let you know what it is after. Um, Having an affair is grievous wrongdoing. It is sinful. It is wicked. David comes to realize something else as well. His sins were not only against Bathsheba, and her husband Uriah, and the army, and those others who were killed in the battle to cover up Uriah being put to the front to be killed, and the very nation of Israel. But his sins were against God. Verse 4, David cries out, against you only have I sinned. No longer is his mind wrestling with the question of how am I going to cover this up. Now he questions, how Could I have treated God this way? And in the next verse, David acknowledges that God is entirely justified when he speaks against him through the prophet Nathan or in any other way. God is completely just, completely fair. He continues, David continues in verse 6, Indeed, I have been wicked from my birth, a sinner from my mother's womb. 
You know, often when people have been caught in wrongdoing, they may say, well, you know, what I did was so out of character. That's not who I am. David makes no such excuses. This is who he is. It may not be who he wants to be. It's certainly not who he was made to be. But yes, this is the real David. So what is a person to do when they realize what they have done and who they really are and they face up to their own sinfulness, guilt, and shame? Well, this brings me to my second main point this morning. The scriptures could not be clearer. We are to acknowledge our own inability to fix ourselves. And we are to repent. David gets real about sin, his sin, and with it, he gets real about repentance. As some of you may know, before I was ordained, I was a trial attorney. And as such, I would sometimes prosecute uh, people and sometimes I would defend people. Much of my bread and butter work as a baby barrister in England was doing what we called pleas in mitigation. This is where a defendant is going to plead guilty to a charge, and the defense attorney presents an argument to the judge about sentencing. Typically, the mitigation for a crime would focus on all the reasons why the judge should be lenient. The defendant had a very tough upbringing. He wasn't as bad as the other defendants. He's pleaded guilty and spared everyone having to come to a trial, not least the victim of the crime, etc., etc., and sometimes I would say to the judge, Your Honor, while the defendant acknowledges that none of the things here are an excuse for what he has done, they do nevertheless go some way towards offering an explanation for what has happened and for which he is now truly sorry and why the court can properly reflect the same in sentencing. Legal nonsense for, you know, be lenient on him. He's not such a bad chap. But notice, will you, David does not take this approach. When he asks for mercy, it is not a plea in mitigation. It's not, have mercy on me because I've owned up and I've pleaded guilty. It is not, have mercy on me because I wasn't as bad as somebody else. No. The cry for mercy is not based on anything at all that David can bring to the table. It is based wholly on the character of God. Have mercy on me, he prays, according to your loving kindness. Blot out my offenses, he pleads, in your great compassion. And so based solely on the character of God, David cries, have mercy on me. Wash me through and through. Purge me from my sin. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Give me the joy of your saving help. Sustain me. Deliver me. David is utterly impotent to do any of these things by or for himself. True repentance, turning away from sin and turning toward God, comes out of this understanding that we, we are powerless to help ourselves. We cannot twist our arm, twist God's arm, based on our own niceness or based even on our own worship. Verse 17, David writes, 
Had you desired it, I would have offered sacrifice. But you take no delight in burnt offerings. You see, the sacrifices were to be an outward expression of something that had to be present inwardly. The sacrifice of God is a troubled spirit and a contrite heart. John Goldingay writes, Sacrifices that express praise and commitment are nonsense when your relationship with God has broken down. When your wife has caught you being unfaithful, a gift of flowers or even a new car is not going to get you anywhere. It's the same with God. All you can do when you've committed serious sin is cast yourself on God's grace as someone who is crushed and broken by the price you've paid for your wrongdoing. As we will say later together in our service when we come to Holy Communion, we do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy. We're not, not one of us, so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Tim Keller writes, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And this brings me to my third point. We need to receive God's forgiveness and be renewed by his spirit. Remember, David did not deserve mercy. Are you kidding me? Forgiveness for an abuser? A rapist? A liar? A cheat? A murderer? Mercy? For a man like that? David knows that he deserves judgment, condemnation, punishment, and banishment. God would have every right to be done with him. David's plea for restoration is a plea for a complete renewal, not a restoration of his basic decency and goodness and niceness. He doesn't have any of that. He never did. Rather, what he needs is to be made new. He needs a new creation, a new birth, a new spirit, a new heart, a new life. And we all do. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So the good news this morning, and it is such, such, such good news, is that no matter what our sin, no matter how far we may have drifted from God, we may, in the words of the letter to the Hebrews that we heard earlier, approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Remember God's character and receive his mercy. Find his grace 
And in this, we have confidence. Confidence in our great high priest. Confidence in Jesus who did what we can never do. And with Jesus' death, what looked like complete failure, what looked like he couldn't have been who he said he was, turned out to be the ultimate display of God's love for the world and the ultimate proof that he was who he said he was, and he did succeed in his mission. Jesus said, those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I believe that what Jesus is saying is that if we subscribe to the notions of self-help and self-advancement and self-actualization and self-salvation, all based on and in the material world, then we're fools, absolute fools. That way of thinking is utterly bankrupt. In this fallen, messed up, self-seeking, hurting world, we need to understand that the never-ending grasping after more will never, ever satisfy. The never-ending striving to fix ourselves by ourselves will fail. It always fails. Unless we die to ourselves, we cannot have life. And the way to life is through Jesus. And yet, you know, even in this call, there's something of a paradox. For this call is not the way to end your problems, to find infinite bliss and happiness. We're not promised that. No, it's a call to follow Jesus in the way of the cross. You know, I, I think sometimes this call of Jesus seems, frankly, too hard. Indeed, if Jesus were distant and remote, some kind of Superman figure, immune from pain and suffering and disappointment, betrayal and loss, then I think it would be too hard. It'd be too hard for me, I'll tell you that. I don't think I could follow someone who didn't know how hard life can be. But as we see in each of our readings this morning, our God is not remote. You know, being a Christian is not about following a set of rules set on stone. Indeed, that was made perfectly clear even back in the Old Testament in our reading from Jeremiah. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It will not be like the old covenant God's people broke, even though God loved them. No, this covenant will come about as God puts his law within us. He will write it on our hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And how does this happen? It happens in Jesus, for he is our great high priest. A high priest who gets it, who knows all about how hard life can be, who knows all about temptation and, and suffering. The one we follow is also the one who intercedes for us. Do you know that? That Jesus, the Son of God, sits at the right hand of God praying for you and for me? He's the one who the writer to the Hebrews tells us offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Jesus, our great high priest, learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, it wasn't that he was disobedient before, but this was the final culmination of his obedience. 
Jesus endured trials and temptations and great suffering, and through it all, he loved his disciples to the end. Through it all, he remained faithful to the work he'd been sent to do. And then, at the end, faced into this final hour, and we'll get there when we get to Holy Week shortly, how did Jesus feel then? Was he feeling pumped and exhilarated with adrenaline coursing through his body? No. In John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. Spare me from it. Take this cup from me. No, not the cross. Anything but the cross. Lord, save me. Does God the Father save him? No. He does not. And Jesus knows that this is one prayer that God the Father cannot answer the way Jesus wishes that he could. For Jesus knows this is the very reason for which he came, to go to the cross. And so Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. He might as well have said, Father, let me be crucified. We're just a week away from the start of Holy Week. And here we get a glimpse of that time between it has arrived as Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem to it is finished, his last words from the cross. And so I pray that we may respond afresh to Jesus' call today to follow him, even in the way of the cross. May we recognize our own sin. May we acknowledge our inability to fix ourselves and instead repent. May we receive God's forgiveness and be renewed by his Spirit. Let me say this today to any here who may be proud or haughty, to those who think sin is an outdated, old-fashioned word that really has had its time. To you, I would say, hear the challenge of Psalm 51 and be convicted of your sin. And to the person who doesn't need any reminding about their sin, to the person who is, feels trapped in guilt and shame, please don't stay in that place. Our enemy, the devil, would love for that. He's the accuser. No, instead, run, run to God. And like David, ask for God's mercy according to his steadfast love, according to his abundant mercy. And to others who maybe are not particularly proud and who have gone to Jesus, I would simply say, be careful. If you think you are standing, lest you fall. David was the king, and previously described as a man after God's own heart when all this happened. None of us can be complacent. If you have sinned much and known much forgiven, forgiveness, if you have known of God's mercy, then teach God's ways to others, not in a holier-than-thou way, but as one who has found forgiveness and received mercy. Come to the Lord's table again today 
trusting in the Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Eat and drink that your sinful body may be made clean by his body and your soul washed through his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen.